It is July 30th, 2020. This is Rook. For people of Iranian descent living outside of Iran, how does the way we perceive ourselves mesh with the way we are perceived? More specifically, is it time to break the taboo and start having the conversations around being people of color? And maybe there is a larger community of minorities that we ought to identify as our brothers and sisters since we are inevitably also seen as the other. Constitutional law professor, best-selling author, and pioneering human rights attorney, Banafshe Akhwari joins us for a feature interview today. Plus, the Rook Roundtable convenes with special guest Niaz Salimi. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 31 of Rook. Umidwar hastam ke hafte khubi dashtin. He won't let me just say something. <laughs> he just won't let me say something. I am energized because we have a big show ahead featuring Banafshe Akhlari, who will join me in uh, just a little bit from San Francisco on questions around the very way in which we self-identify as a global community of Iranian descent, juxtaposed against the way we are seen by others. I'm also energized because I have a new haircut. And uh, the whole gang is here with a very special guest at our roundtable. First of all, hello to you, the fabulous Keon. Hello, and I must say I didn't notice that you had a haircut. Really? It looked, it looked great before. Oh, That's what I mean. Thank nice you. I, I feel like I look like a, um, I don't know if bank tellers still exist, <laughs> but I look like just a, a, a very, very average proper. bank teller. Yeah, yeah, you look like a proper Would you like man. to uh, invest, uh, debit, credit, I don't know. I don't even know how to be a it's bank a teller. It's a trustworthy haircut. And nothing against bank tellers. No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Standardized haircut. Uh, the fabulous key. Uh, Captain Reza, hello. Hello, sir. Nice to see you. Groovy Shaya. Hello. Omidvar Hastam Kehub Hastin. Hafte Khubi Dashtebude Washin. Thank you. All right. And uh, a very special guest joining us at our roundtable today a little later, and we'll say hello to her right now, the talented actor, artist, activist, and I think pillar of our Iranian-Canadian community in Canada who's done so much work for migrants at the grassroots level in this country, Niaza Salimi, hello. Salam. Salam. Hello to you. So too. nice to have you here. So nice being here. Thank um, you for doing this. I'm going to give you a proper introduction later in the show, but well, we're... Very happy. You don't want a proper introduction. <laughs> That's more than <laughs> Thank you. No, you deserve much more than that. In fact, you should really be a featured guest uh, uh, coming up on Rook, but uh, hopefully this is just one of many other appearances. We're, because of the subject matter, we thought you'd be great uh, on this particular program. A few quick announcements. Our website is up, rookmedia.com. Do you like the, the website, Keon? 
I do. Who who put that fabulous have website you, together? Have you seen the website? <laughs> I have. I glanced at it. <laughs> Why are you putting I me knew, on the spot? I knew she probably like hasn't the, even looked I'm at like it. I'm like the bad yeah. student to you. Yeah. What, is Reza the A-plus student over no, there? Well, I just know Reza and Shia Captain have, Reza. Uh, I always, have probably I always seen the website. Homework. Oh, Rookmedia.com. Uh, next week, we're going to have uh, pics of the whole team there. And, um, oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're going to be exposed. You can use some of your um, Miss Canada. Uh, oh. uh, so Miss Runner on, Up. Moving. What you <laughs> Get to the subject. I can't remember which no. one you were. Um, we are going to uh, uh, also have the, the Rook Dispatch. Uh, if you join our community on the website, so there's a button there to subscribe, and, and we'll, we'll have a, a regular newsletter. Also, want to remind remind people that you can find us on Instagram. We post our interviews there as well. Did you know we have an Instagram? I, of course I did. That I know. That I know for sure. Thank you, Kia. I follow it as well. I, it's wondering. not that you're not on top of these things in other parts of your life. It's just when it comes to Rook, I just see you run in here, run out, and I'm never sure uh, what you've uh, been following. Uh, the Ervin Khachikian. I can pronounce that that's, that's better go, than you go can. Go for it. So, yes. Mm-hmm. The Ervin Khachikian interview from uh, earlier this week already has 2,000 streams on Instagram alone. So some folks are watching or listening to the show just on Instagram, uh, as well as all the action on the YouTube and SoundCloud, Spotify and iTunes. So at Rook Media is our handle on Instagram, if that's your preferred platform. Uh, and our resident artist, Ponta, has done little graphics of each of the members of the Roundtable <laughs> team on Instagram. So you can see that all there. Uh, and finally, I wanted to mention this week marked the 40th anniversary of the passing of the former Shah of Iran in exile, of course, in Cairo, July 27th, 1980. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a series of interviews with historians looking at the Shah and the Pahlavi dynasty from a few different perspectives. There will certainly be some differences of, of opinion, and I suspect some common ground as well. This will be a couple of weeks from now on Rook, so stay tuned for that. Okay, uh, Keon, Reza, Shaya, our dear Niaz, thank you. We will get to you and the roundtable right after this interview. Let me get to our featured guest. Maybe one of the hardest questions for our Iranian community to grapple with, especially in the West, is how we are perceived and considered when it comes to our identity and status and how we deal with discrimination and injustice towards Iranians in the diaspora. To put it another way, how do we address the disconnect between antiquated ideas of being Aryan and white, Babajan Mosefid Hastim, and the fact that we are inevitably seen as a minority? How do we connect the dots between a self-image of sophistication and accomplishment as a diaspora and the fact that we may get pulled out of a lineup or even banned from the United States based on our country of heritage? The question of our minority status and related rights and opportunities in countries around the world is inextricably linked to the notion of us being people of color. And yet that notion makes a lot of Iranians in the diaspora uncomfortable, right? And brings about associations that we take issue with, which raises a whole set of other questions. Can we really make headway as a community that needs to stand up for itself if we don't accept the fact that we can be seen as the other or... Is this all hogwash and Jian should get off the soapbox and everything is fine? 
These questions are not new to my featured guest today. She has had a remarkable career so far that has reached the upper echelons of law and academia in the United States. And for those who know Banafshe Akhlari, it may be no surprise that she has ascended as far as she has. She is a doer. She was born in Iran, moved to America at a young age, and has become a pioneering civil and human rights attorney, an educator, a best-selling author, and social entrepreneur. Banafshe started her career as a professor of constitutional law at the John F. Kennedy School of Law. She founded the National Legal Sanctuary for Community Advancement, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ensuring the human rights and dignity of Middle Eastern Muslim and South Asian peoples in the post 9-11 era. She has also worked as a consultant with the UN Development Fund for Women and is the former director of the West Region for Amnesty International. She's received numerous distinctions, including a certificate for special congressional recognition from the U.S. House of Representatives and being named one of the top 100 most influential lawyers in California. Manafshe's practice area today includes intellectual property rights and immigration defense, and she is a board member at the Center for Human Rights in Iran. And right now, Banafshe Akhlaqi joins me from San Francisco today. Hello. Hello, my friend. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. How's it going over there? It's going well. Um, still sheltering in place, uh, manning the fort, and um, trying to do all things that we can to remain safe and um, hope to have a, a better outcome here in California soon. Yes, here's hoping for that. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have you on this program, Banafshen. I, I want to get to your story, your Iranian identity, and our, our relationship as a community with being the other, as I talked about in the introduction there. But, but first, a general question, thinking about you and about the zeitgeist. And as someone who has worked in the field of law and human rights for so long, tell me about how you're processing the current um, the current moment the current paradoxical moment in the United, United States where you live and you teach the Constitution an American administration accused of putting migrant children in cages executing a travel ban affecting Iranians and simultaneously and perhaps not unrelated a time of profound change and social awareness around race issues and injustices in the United States how are you making sense of all that right now First, let me let me uh, say that uh, the honor is mine to be here uh, with you and with your listeners. You know, the concept of this programming, I think, is not only timely, but in, a, in an essence, uh, legacy building, um, in a way, oral histories of the diaspora. So I'm, I'm honored to be a part of that. Um, and at this time, uh, the, the picture that you just painted in your question, I think is critical to our identity here in the U.S. and in Canada and abroad outside of our potentially our country of birth, as it was from, for me. Um, you know, as I look out, I'm in the Oakland Hills. That's where my home is uh, here in California. And I, there's much to do um, in the city of Oakland in Berkeley and Emeryville and San Francisco and all the cities around us in terms of protests that have some led to riots. And with the backdrop of uh, Black Lives Matter, social equities, social injustices, um, how do I view it all? I think, I think what 
most of us, I would say, um, who are people of color, because um, I consider myself a person of color, is that it's time. It's time to uh, make the shifts that are being called for. It's time to um, have the voices who haven't been heard thus far come forward. It's time for um, people of color and those from the black community to continue to um, stand together, unite uh, towards the, a common aim. And I think that um, from that prism, uh, I have a lot of hope. Um, I, have see, I see light at the end of this. Um, not from a, um, from a, you know, someone might think, you know, you're from California, so it's kind of like a kumbaya thing. Not <laughs> from that place. But from, from the stance that if you look back at history and you look back at the various civil rights causes and movements and various rights-based movements, you know, they start this way. Um, and folks stand up and they have their voices heard. Um, and then it's a challenge. There's, a, there's the opposition to that, of course. But I don't think that um, any of what we are seeing should leave us feeling hopeless. You know, a lot of um, what's happening right now seems to be um, the uh, uh, an attack on traditional institutions, um, some of which uh, the time has come to to reassess. Um, you're sitting in the United States. You've been a professor of constitutional law in the United States, which is uh, not so bad uh, distinction for an Iranian kid. But uh, but you also have a a tremendous affinity you've said, for the American Constitution. If you can, briefly, why does the U.S. Constitution mean so much to you? You know, I mean, the Constitution began with, and you probably know this, and some of your, your listeners, many of your listeners probably know this, that the, the, the Constitution began with we, the white male Protestant landowners, right? Like, like that's who the Constitution was created for and who wrote it. Um, and then it slowly we lost one by one of those identity uh, um, kind of prefixes, and then it became we the people. Um, and so when I, when I think of the U.S. Constitution, and I spent some time in South Africa with some of the lawyers and judges who were part of the uh, apartheid movement, um, and spent some time in India um, who were lawyers and judges who were with um, Gandhi's movement, you know, they used the U.S. Constitution as the basis in the creation of their uh, documents and their legal structures. Now, they took it much further than we did, and they incorporated additional rights that we don't have. But there's just something for me sacred about that document, the, the way in which this country's come about. Now, are we anywhere close to what the vision of that document was? No. You know, does the lady who stand proudly in the middle of the waterway in New York, would she be ashamed with what we're doing with children in cages and others? I would say yes, because it's not uh, congruent to the, to the promise. But, but there's a vision, there's a mission um, behind that document, that breathing, living document. And that is what I respect. And that's what I hold sacred. And, um, and that's what I frankly fight for.
um, that's where I go back to in, in any of my cases, whether it was post 9-11 or any cases today. I hark back to those words and the, the essence of those words. So you say if somebody down in, uh, in, in one of the protests right now, not far from you in San Francisco or in Portland up the, up the uh, coast or whatever, says, uh, hey, lady, that document you revere was written by slave owners of a bygone era, you say what? You say, absolutely right. Absolutely right. It was. Um, and the, the method in which our cases how we set precedent is we, we look at cases, right? And we take those cases to each level of our court system. And if we need to effectuate change, we take it to the highest court, at U.S. Supreme Court. One of the examples that I look at and I applaud is the LGBTQ community when they moved the right to marriage in a very short period of time from here in San Francisco all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court um, and prevailed. We use that same legal body and the legal system to be able to effectuate change, to alter the course of... Now, those same white slave owners probably never thought <laughs> that this is how it was going to go, um, that we'd be giving rights to for same-sex marriage. But here we are. And so I think we can't throw, you know, how they say, the American saying of throwing the baby out with bath water. You know, the, we, there's cooler heads need to prevail. And if there's a vision for an America, then I would say continue speaking loudly, continue protesting, continue gathering, use your First Amendment rights, and um, help effectuate that change. Okay, let me weave the Iranian global diaspora uh, into this. And I'm so glad that you described yourself as a, as a woman of color because it, it perfectly segues into what I want to do a bit of a deep dive in, into this issue I set up in the introduction of this episode before we get to some of your personal story as well. Uh, and, and that is where we, the hyphenated Iranian community, if you will, sit in terms of being a minority group and our self-identity or lack thereof as such. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember how many times I've been sitting with a group of Iranians here in, in Canada or in the United States, uh, especially older Iranians, and they'll say something uh, about the people sitting, say, around us, and they'll say, <laughs> you know, In other words, seeing the people who have been here for generations as the foreigners. It's sort of the ultimate version of putting ourselves at the center of things. You know, why do Iranians have so much trouble seeing ourselves as the other? I don't know if it's just an Iranian phenomenon or if it's a human phenomenon that we don't want to see ourselves as the other. We want to see ourselves as trusted and integrated and welcomed and accepted because after all, you know, from the Iranian vantage point, we point to but look, statistically, we're so educated and we're affluent and we add to the positive bottom line in any society that we're in and, and, and. And all of that is true. You know, we do have the heritage uh, that goes back to our Aryan roots and, you know, all of, the, all of these things are true. And what's also true, concurrent to that, what's also true is that in the countries in which we reside, which tends to be primarily 
countries that are quote unquote white countries. European, Canada, United States, we have you know, part of the diaspora is in Australia and, and New Zealand. So in these countries that we reside within, um, and I'm not talking about our brothers and sisters who are in the Middle East or else elsewhere that look more like their in the the majority. We don't look like the majority <laughs> here in California. I don't look like the majority. Right. I have dark hair, dark eyes. I have olive skin. Um, I can try to stay out of the sun, and I can use colored contacts and keep, I don't know, <laughs> take my hair a few shades lighter. Right. But at the end of the day, my name is Banashach Lodi, and there is an otherness about me, right? My name's not Sally Smith, and I wasn't born in you know, here in California, I, I'm, I'm, it doesn't matter how much my English is similar to the native speaker. It doesn't matter how well I perform in this society. There's always a sense of, oh, you are doing so well and you're from Iran. You know, there's a, there's an otherness already embedded. Yep. So, you know, how do we come to terms with that? I think there might be, and I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, and I think that would be interesting to bring in some of those folks to tell us from their vantage point. But I think there's a part of, especially those those who, you know, have left Iran for something better. Um, you know, we didn't leave Iran for something better. We left Iran for my education, and we did that in 74 or 75 so pre-revolution. Um, but those who came after the revolution, I think it's really challenging to think, wow, so we can't, we, we can't be there, and we're not really assimilated here, so wherever the here is that they, they reside within. Right, right. So then what, where do we go? Who are we then? You know, where, where is our comfort zone? But also, on, in, in terms of the actual language of it, too, it, it, I, I like having grown up in an Iranian family and being aware of the community, I can feel the uneasiness of people listening to this as I say, well, we're brown people or we're people of color, uh, of certain folks. I also do feel, however, that it was anathema to say this 20 or 30 years ago. Um, when I would talk about it, I, I would definitely get pushback. I, I would write articles about, um, you know, a film that was racist uh, towards uh, Iranians because we're people of color, and people would say, why are you calling us people of color? You know, uh, that seems to have been changing. And you've talked about something starting to shift after 9-11, where we became, we, we started to see each other as part of a, a broader group of minorities. Can you speak to that? Definitely. I mean, listen, um, we were on the special registration list after 9-11. And the special registration list, some of your listeners might know, but others may not. And it was a list that was put together by Attorney General Ashcroft at the time under the Bush administration. And that list, that edict, had actually been sitting dormant on the books here, um, the, the law books here in the United States for some time. It was created um, and imposed upon the Japanese which then led to their internment. So what the edict said is that it said this, boys, men, and senior citizens over the age of 16 need to come in to then INS 
uh, buildings for immigration buildings, now DHS buildings, um, Department of Homeland Security buildings, and be photographed, fingerprinted, and answer a series of questions. Well, the first group had five countries listed on it, Jianjian. The, 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 of this first five were Iranians. So, you know, and then other, other nations. So the nations were about 24 countries, which covered North Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia, and Indonesia. And these were countries of interest, countries that are suspect. Things haven't really changed much, as you can see with the travel ban. We're still on that list. And I recall one of my clients saying in that first round, you know, because they were going in, being interviewed, and many of them were being detained, and that they were in a, in a detention cell waiting to figure out what's happening to them next. And they were shackled and handcuffed together, um, awaiting orders as to what would occur next, as I said. And one of the uh, officers in the detention facility yelled out to a colleague of his, bring the shotgun, we've got a cage full of them. Well, a cage full of them, they're not, they're not identifying my client as the Iranian one, and that one as the Iraqi one, and that one as the Kuwaiti one, and that one as the Syrian one. They're not doing that. Right. Or the next rounds that started with the Pakistanis and, and the Afghanis, they see all of us as the same. And I know we don't do that. I know we understand ourselves as different with different language and different heritage and different culture. But those who are looking at us, the reality is those that are looking at us, unless they have done their research and they're, they're up on their history and geography, they don't, they don't separate us. And so I think it goes back to the first question that you had asked me. I think the moment that we, as the Iranian diaspora, can start to see ourselves as part of this larger tapestry that's in the United States or in Canada or elsewhere. And that tapestry is multicolored and we are part of those colors. Um, in, and not as a negative, not as a uh, disparagement, but as what's so, it's what's so. We are, we are people of color um, in the eyes of the white. So I don't know if that answers the question. Um, I think what's going to happen, we're going to get a lot of upset um, after this, uh, this interview. I'm sure you're going to get lots of comments that are saying this woman's crazy. But here's the important point. I mean, this is the heart of it. You've, you've touched on it, that it's not fanciful to say we're people of color. It's not some woke, trendy thing that I'm, I'm trying to play into. It, that, that what you're saying, if I, if I understand correctly, is that it is important for us to recognize as a community that we are the other so that or before we can address injustices towards our community, let alone advance politically, socially, and economically in the West. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, there's a lot of power in first identifying who we really are vis-a-vis -vis the location in which we reside. It's really critical to know that first because, listen, this, these folks that are on the streets, all of the, the conversation about uh, Black Lives Matter, 
and and of course those that are people of color this conversation we if we get that we're actually part of it we now get to be a part of a much larger movement and then those rights that come out of of this movement we could be at the decision making table and making sure our voices are also being heard and being woven into the laws and the the new the new the new paradigm that that's going to come out of this but if we don't see the power in joining hands and linking hands with others who are similarly situated whether we want to believe that or not that are similarly situated then we're losing an opportunity for our own uh empowerment and our own honestly ultimately uh affiliation wherever we are you know one reminder i have of this is during those days around 9/11 i met with, with reverend cecil williams here in san francisco and he was you know on the front lines with martin luther king and i just shared with him you know the the heartache and the strife and the fear and the concern that i had for my clients and the communities that i was serving and he said a lot of wonderful things but the one thing that really stuck out for me was that he welcomed me said girl welcome to the front lines um uh, i never thought that i was going to be part of the front lines like like he was mm. you know that's not that's what our struggle is is what i thought but the more i sat with it the more i thought he's right we're we're literally on those front lines um whether by circumstance geopolitical issues however you want to look at it um but we are there and it's time for us to identify understand accept and stand but you know there's another thing which is for those of us who've been in the west for a long time there's another paradox that emerges uh which is that even though we are more western because we've been here so long uh not not to take anything away from our commitment to our persian family values and and meals and all of that but even though we are more western as a product of being here so long we also remember what it was to what it was like to be here say during the revolutionary period um what it was like to be here and to to have no choice but to be seen as another even though uh many many in the diaspora might might have been in denial about it uh, and so maybe this is a, a chance to segue into some of your background. I want to come back to this, but let, let's get a better understanding of how you've become this legal and social force. You, you've said a few times, I think you said this in your TED talk, that you love people, <laughs> you love humans. Uh, so tell me about coming to America from Iran pre-revolution. Your family comes in the 1970s and sets up Hotel Akhlaqi in, in, uh, in California. Yeah, um, it wasn't a real establishment. Hotel Akhlaqi, something that my brother and I started calling our family home because um, when family members would come, you know, they came after we did at different stages after the revolution or before the revolution. Uh, they came and stayed with us, and so my brother and I, in a very cheeky, tadarsukta kind of way, <laughs> started calling our house. Um, what was it like? I mean, you know, we were the dark ones. <laughs> we were definitely the dark ones, and um, we were different. Uh, and we, the, our food was different. Uh, I'm sure a lot of a lot of folks can relate to this, even outside of our culture. 
our lunch boxes consisted of different foods. <laughs> you know, we had martadella sandwiches where everybody else had bologna sandwiches. Um, actually, pre, pre the hostage crisis, I have to say, it was a sweet time yes, as well. Yes. Um, we were meeting new folks. Um, we were learning this new culture that we're now part of. And then the hostage crisis. Let happened. me get to the hostage crisis, but and and the effect it had on you as a kid. But, but first, you, you've said you were always the protector in your family. You're, you're this little girl, but you were the protector of your brother. You were the protector of your mother. Uh, this makes sense in the context, in the prism of how we see you now, the protector of human rights uh, post nine eleven, later in life. Why do you think you gravitated towards that role as a kid? Well, there was. Um there was a request by my father that I did. My father spent some of the of the year with us here in the United States and some of the year back home in Iran for um, a few years up until the revolution. And every LAX airport departure, uh, there were of course lots of tears and upset and my father would kneel down before me uh, and say, you, know, you need to be my big girl and take care of your mother and your younger brother while I'm gone. And so I took that on as my, my duty, not an, not, not an obligation, but my duty. And, um, and that really has been the core of my work everywhere you look, whether um, I'm on a board somewhere, the commission of the state bar that I've sat on, or in my work itself, or with my family and my community. So that, that base of, I've got your back, I've got you, um, is, uh, is very real for me. You also, Banafsha, you've said, uh, I've always known I wanted to be a contribution to the world. And I have this image of you, this little girl, uh, at those Iranian mehmunis. You would sit with the men, even as a, as a little girl, and speak out. Tell me about that. Yeah, so, you know... Um, those who may not know of our culture, we, we have a lot of gatherings, right? We have a lot of mehmunis, and you're invited to someone's home, or you're inviting people to your home, and generally the women gravitate together, and then the men would get together, and their uh, conversations would be political, historic, economic, social, these types of things. And my interest was with the men, and I would go sit with the men. And I just remember even at, the, at a young age, then I mean under the age of 10, uh, as I would sit with my father listening to the men debate about whatever the issues were of the day or the past, um, I had something to say. And my father would hush the conversation and allow my voice to be heard and for me to put in my input. And uh, that, I've got to tell you, Jianjian, uh, that's probably one of the most formative things for me that um, to this day, uh, and even in my work, there's, there's not been anything that has caused fear for me to speak up. Hmm. Um, and I think that's really critical um, in what my father was, uh, instilled in me. So I think that... The issue, go ahead. Sorry, I just remembered something um, that uh, you had just mentioned in terms of the love for people. Um, you know, the the basis of my wanting to be a contribution is visceral. I mean, it's so, it's why I wake up in the morning. You know, it's, um, I really believe it's, it's the why I'm here. 
on the planet is to be a contribution um, in, in how I can. And I, I hope that, you know, and sometimes I don't do it well. Sometimes I overstep. Sometimes, you know, they're blunders. Um, but it's always from that place of being a contribution. And I just remember this um, time again with my father where he was uh, cooking in, the, in, the, in our kitchen. And it's one of his, he has two, two recipes. <laughs> and he was cooking one of those two. And I jumped up on the counter and I remember asking him the question, Baba Jun, you know, dear father, how is it that some people become Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Mother Teresa? And then how is it that other people become Hitler or Stalin or Mussolini? In our context, um, in the house that I grew up in, these were the conversations. Hmm. Um, our weekends were in front of the federal building in Los Angeles demonstrating against the regimes um, in Iran. And I say regimes, I mean, Shah's regime or um, the current regime. So I grew up with this, you know, this was, this was the water in which I swam in. And so my father didn't flinch when I asked the question, he just answered, it's all, it's all a matter of choice. And so in that space of um, my formative days, formative years of that, it's a choice. I chose contribution. And I could have chosen the other, I suppose, but I chose contribution. And so what I hope is that's what I, I leave as, as my legacy. I love that story. I love that image of you and your dad uh, in the kitchen having that conversation. Not soon after that, you, or soon after that, I suppose, uh, you have a, a rude awakening in terms of being seen as the other, if you didn't already uh, notice that from your dark hair and your complexion and all of that. And this is the, the revolution period and the hostage crisis and you being a kid in the United States, as, as I discussed a few moments ago. I, I often try to implore folks in our diaspora now who are either younger who are, who've come more recently to understand what it was like back then when Iran seemingly overnight became this arch enemy of the United States and, and the West. Um, tell me how it affected you as a kid. It was horrible. It was horrible, Jean Jean. We were, um, my brother and I were in elementary school at the time. And, you know, we went from all of the kids on the block and in the school being our friends, folk, you know, kids that are in the backyard playing with us, in the front yard playing with us, and to nothing, to all of a sudden, no one was now allowed to, to interact with us. And I, and I remember my younger brother, um, he's, he's about three years younger than I am, he started getting picked on in school. Um, and you, you got to understand, he was probably in second or third grade at the time. And he started being picked on school, and the, they, the kids were pushing him um, and saying, release our, our hostages. And being the protector and the older sister, of course, I jumped in and um, defended my brother, and, and we came home. But I, those, were, those were all kids that were, you know, doing slumber parties with us, and all of a sudden, as though we were holding their hostages personally in our backyard in Orange County, California. Yeah. Um, that, that time, I think, you know, it was, whether it was the students that were being deported, um, families like mine that were being uh, singled out and attacked, um, 
or 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 not being allowed into the country there's if we really look at it there's been these times and at least for me in in the 40 plus years that i've been in this country that you know it's like i'm not really sure when it was it was cool to be iranian (laughs) when it was um okay to be iranian we've always kind of been you know singled out as the terrorist and um a threat and not friend so whether it's that time during the hostage crisis or as we talk right now uh in in the events of today it's i think it's always been challenging being an being an iranian um at least here in america you know back in the early 2000s i had just started a a a tv show and um i was a guest on this late night uh, talk show kind of and and the host said uh and I said something about what you know, being Iranian. I and and he said, "Oh, you're playing the Persian card." And I said, "The Persian card? <laughs> when would that be an advantage? You know, historically, at least in the last few decades, to play a Persian card? You know, it's it's not really helped us that much. Uh, you know, as as a kid, it certainly didn't help. Um, we we kid about it now, but it's heartbreaking. Um, I remember some story you had told me about. Your, your mom having to wake up early in the morning and wash down the front door. Uh, can you explain what happened? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it almost felt like it was a daily event. I'm not sure it was a daily event, but um, yeah, they would, people would come and leave their, dispose their human remains. Um, and my mother would wake up in the morning and she'd wash it down so that when we woke up and were on our way to go to school, that's not what we literally stepped in or had to face, you know, there's, there's so many episodes like that where my father was outside with a few of our family members. And at the time they were younger men, maybe in late high school, early college years, and they were all working in the front yard. And um, we, all of a sudden I just remembered my father screaming out to the family members, my cousins to come back, come back because they had gone charging towards a car that um, had thrown things at them. We'd wake up in the morning and the house would be toilet papered. And, you know, this, these, and I don't think any of this is uh, just, just our story. Um, These are the stories of many. I mean, I remember all of a sudden younger Iranian men, starting to take Italian names and wanting to refer to themselves as Italian rather than Iranian. But, you know, these are, these are, I think these are the the types of things, these are the types of events that lead us to really going back to the very first question that you asked, which is, are we other? Um, Are we people of color? And I don't think that there's any evidence at least in this country that I could uh, point to, to say that, no, absolutely, we are integrated and we're seen as equals. And I think that's, that's important because it's important for us to embrace reality. So the story goes, by the way, that uh, after that, um, undeterred by these horrible events, you, you end up going to college at the age of 15. 
clearly a slacker, not, not an A-type personality at all. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> college at the age of 15, your dad expects you to be a petrochemist, but you do finally end up announcing or I suppose intending to be a lawyer. You become, you become a lawyer, you become a, a professor of constitutional law. Banafsha, one of your lasting accomplishments, uh, we've referred to it a couple of times, it came about 20 years ago, was that the, the founding of the National Legal Sanctuary for Community Advancement. How did 9-11 affect you? Why did you want to leap to the defense of Muslims and, and Middle Eastern people at that point? Well, I, it was literally um, as a result of a phone call from a former student who was in my constitutional law class. He had called and said that a friend of his was going to be questioned by the FBI for a third time. And that individual was uh, Palestinian heritage born in Jordan. And, um, and here... In the United States, he, he came um, as a student and then an H-1B specialty worker and then received his legal permanent residency card, his green card. And so that interview that I attended really changed everything um, in terms of how I saw where we were going in this country. And so during that interview, as I, I was representing the client, uh, and this was my first client, I wasn't practicing law at the time I was teaching uh, the Constitution at the time, the FBI agents asked, you know, if you're innocent, why do you have an attorney? And so I would have to keep bringing up the Constitution, and thank goodness I was teaching the Constitution at the time. And at the very end of it, because I, I got in their way, I, I, I presume, uh, they were upset and they pushed away from their the table we were sitting in at, at a Starbucks because they kept wanting to go into his place of business and it was really creating a lot of agitation to say the least. So we were at a local Starbucks and the, the one of the gentlemen who was asking the questions pushed away from the table and the, his chair fell back. And that was the first time that he addressed me directly. And he said, counsel will be in, in contact. And I said, we look forward to um, speaking with you and hosting you at my offices. And I didn't have an office at the time. So I went and got an office. But within a few days, I sent a, a letter to headquarters in Sacramento and then CC'd DC asking for a cease and desist. And they did write back um, stating that they would uh, not pursue any further questioning. And when I contacted the client, Gian John, and told him that they're no longer going to be coming by and questioning him any further, I thought he would be elated, but he wasn't. And so when I asked a little bit more as to why he wasn't excited about the fact that this is done, he said they lost child that his wife was carrying at the time because of the stress. Oh. That led me to start doing this work because that's, that wasn't America to me. That, and, and listen, like I said, I grew up in a very open-eyed family, so it wasn't like I, I have a, a rose-colored glasses about the United States. But something just shifted um, and just got me at that moment, that that's, this is not America, this is not what um, I'm standing for. This is not why I stand in front of the classroom and teach the Constitution. So then the organization was born after a few years of what I thought would be just um, a couple of years of working in the space, but it kept growing and the numbers of clients kept growing. And so I, I thought that what we really need at this point was an organization that was going to write the story, our civil rights story, um, rather than someone else writing it on our behalf. And we need to be out in the front defending our own rather than others defending us. 
tell me about what the most profound takeaway has been was through those years and that organization. You talked earlier about the the civil rights leader saying, welcome to the front lines, uh, sister. And here you are going from being a law professor, obviously involved, as you say, through your whole life, but but to really being on the front lines at a highly turbulent time, right post 9-11, where probably you were even suspect despite your credentials. Tell me about what you learned from that, what your takeaway from that was in terms of human rights, humanity, and as we segue back into to being an Iranian and where where we fit into this equation? It's such a good question, Jian. Um, such a good question. I think that the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked it is that change is possible. Change is really possible. Transformative change takes something something else. And that's the that's the space in which I'm playing in today, transformative change, which is long lasting change. But change is possible and change is possible, Jian, with the with people that you wouldn't even think could possibly be an ally. You know, to this very day, I am still friends with and colleagues with the gentleman who was primarily on the other side of the aisle from me on most of my cases. And he was the one person, there was one was similar to him in every state at the time, who was the attorney for the Department of Planned Security on the national security cases. But that gentleman to this day is a friend of mine. And we were able to become, <laughs> become partners um, through this process of being able to get these cases out of the, the, the suspect category. I mean, who would ever think that that was the case, that would be the case? Or individuals in the media that would cover these cases like as though their own lives depended on it. So when you start to see the issue as not us and them, even though we're talking about the other, right? But if you start seeing ourselves as part of a much, like I said, a much larger tapestry that's being woven together, there is absolutely, without a doubt in my mind, that change is possible. Let me come back to the Iranian diaspora and your work around human rights. I, I should note you sit on the board of the Center for Human Rights in Iran that does such essential work in bringing human rights abuses to the attention of the world. I guess I want to say to you, what do you want to say to the Iranian community in terms of learning how to address human rights issues? You, you've said we need to learn as Iranians how to do democracy. I know it sounds dismissive on the face of it, but I, I think I know where you're going with that. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. Um, and again, not to not to be disrespectful, but from the years of my life thus far, um, and I'm speaking to you as, as 51 years old. You know, what I've seen in my lifetime, the way in which we, we um, and I say we as the Iranians who have conversations about how Iran should be and shouldn't be and which direction it should go and shouldn't go. And, and what I'm about to say is not rocket science and it's been said before. But it's good to be reminded that democracy means is that you actually sit across from the other and not agree 
and disagree, but yet be able to hear the other and find at some point, find where common ground can be. Now, there are some places where there is no common ground, right? There is no, there is, there's no discussion when it's a human rights violation, right? There's, we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that says so. Um, and there, there are many other documents that say where is the line that you will not cross. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how to be able to come together and find mechanisms to be able to hear each other. Listen, if we could learn from Gandhi or Mandela, we should. Those icons taught us how to be able to transcend these, these massive, massive injustices. And I just, I think I would welcome... I would welcome our brethren and sisters to start looking at where are places where we could find common ground. I don't want to put this all on you. You're just one voice and you're one opinion, and 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 there's really no right answer to this, and everybody has it. But you are an important uh, voice in our community, and you have worked uh, in, in law and academia, and and you do understand the Iranian community. Uh, so. You know, you you won't be held to it. But, but why are we so bad at this? Do we have to go back to, to again two thousand five hundred years of history, or uh, we we can if we want? But why do we have this issue with doing democracy? It's not a loaded question at all, Gian. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it's a rook. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Why? I mean, you know, <laughs> there's, there really is. I mean, if you just, if you take it out of a, a geopolitical context and okay. just bring it home, be okay. literally yeah. in your own home. Yes. You know, how do we interact with each other? How do we speak to each other? How often are we righteous? How often do we say our way is the right way? Um, how often do we hear someone else and say, oh, wow, you completely changed my mind. I had no idea. Right. Um, it's, it's cultural. There's, there's a, there are so many layers to this. I don't think it, and then of course then if you take it all the way out of the home and put it into society and put it in, all the way up to the you know, nation state, it, that's going to carry through. I think there's a there's a lot we need to learn and I I honestly believe I honestly believe it starts with the individual. There's no way you're going to make societal change unless we start looking at ourselves. Let me turn it around. And uh, because while while you've said Iranians need to learn how to do democracy, you've also said something else that, uh, that maybe this is your salvation here. <laughs> if I've if I've dug a ditch for you, you you released a book that uh, became a bestseller in 2015, a, a book of of poems and and thought pieces called Beautiful Reminders. I want to quote from one of the passages in this book, uh, where you say where it says, uh, "Go on, go on." and turn the corner. It is nothing to fear. It's the wisdom of the ages that is waiting for you, dear. The tenderness of ancestors. Go on, walk towards it with your arms wide open and your heart ready for its embrace. It's the path designed to you, your ultimate grace. 
You know, I love that piece. And the part about ancestors and wisdom of the ages seems germane here. We saw we need to learn how to do democracy, but we say that, but what can we learn from our particular ancestors and ancestry? You know, I think, um, you know, you had mentioned our heritage, our coming from a great land, um, the Aryan land. You know, and, and and as I'm speaking, I'm looking at the the serious uh, human rights cylinder that someone had gifted to me. That's also who we are. You know, um, that's also what we have created. The first human rights documentation. We've also been people who have been inclusive um, of varying ideologies and belief systems, I would say, let's pull from that history, let's pull from those teachings as we're also going forward. We don't always get it right, but you're also a fan of failure sometimes. What can we learn from failure? It's the, um, I think it's the the juice. (laughs) I think it's the the juice of life. it's where we can see and, and diagnose what the next steps should be. You know, um, the commission that I sit on, and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that we do at the state bar um, here in California. It's the Legal Services Trust Fund Commission. And I've been with them for the last decade, um, and, and now it's chairperson. And we fund over 100 organizations, legal aid organizations up and down the state of California for them to do amazing work, work for the indigent community, senior citizens, homeless, and others. And every year we review, obviously, what we did before, and we look to see how can we, where, where did we fail? Where did we come up short? Um, and where can we expand the work that, that, this good work that we're all committed to? And I think if we don't take that opportunity to look at where those quote-unquote failures are are coming up short in our own lives, in our professions, in our diaspora as we teach the next generation, I don't think we're we're able to see the future and the next steps that we're to take with clarity, with true clarity. So I think it's, um, as I said, I think it's the juice of life. You've been so generous with your time. I'll end with a couple of uh, personal questions, if you'll allow me. Uh, You know, you've been at the forefront of uh, uh, addressing horrible situations, human rights abuses around the world. You've seen it up front. You've traveled the world. You've seen it at home uh, in, in the U.S. where you live. And yet you have been very clear that you do not believe in bitterness and anger. How do you avoid becoming angry and bitter when you do the work you do? Oh, I don't avoid it. <laughs> I do become angry. Um, I just don't become bitter. So I, I work through my anger. I'll speak it through. I'll Meditation's critical to me. But where I ultimately land is I'm, I'm always trying to understand Jian, the other side. I'm always trying to get over there where they are and figure out why they do what they do and say what they say. Uh, but bitterness, I don't, I don't do bitterness. For what purpose? I mean, what is it, what is it 
if I if I hold this in my heart, like we say, you know, kinei, right? Holding grudges, it, it only hurts me. It doesn't hurt the person that I'm I'm against. I don't think anybody intends <laughs> sets out as a life ambition to be bitter. It just it happens because you've seen so much injustice. For example, you know, uh, you become cynical, you become disheartened, you become deflated, you become bitter. Uh, you haven't. I'm. Uh, what's the magic sauce? I, I don't know. I, I, I believe in, in people. I believe in humanity. I believe that um, at the root of it, we're good. Um, I believe that we make bad choices and that there's circumstances that cause us to, to out of fear, react. But I don't, I, I don't believe that people are inherently bad. I don't believe that people, you know, if given a choice, they, they want to be evil. Um, and do bad things. And I concentrate on the beauty. You know, I concentrate on on the places where our humanity shines, Jian. I mean, there's, there are a lot of horrible things happening on the planet, sure, um, here in the United States. But there is more good occurring than bad occurring, which goes to you know, my personal mission statement of the uh, realization of peace in my lifetime. Oh, look at you. You know, what? that's that's my final question. My final question, we've, there's so much synergy in this dance of an interview that, that um, you've, you've led us there. You, you've said that every action you choose, every action you choose, uh, every action you choose to take arises from your personal mission statement. So I was going to ask you, what is it and whether you believe it's possible? What's, what's the mission statement? The realization of peace in my lifetime. And, you know, folks might hear that differently as though what I'm saying is that we will reach peace in my lifetime. Um, but what it means for me, uh, the realization of peace in my lifetime, is just this very moment, Jianjian. I am, I am absolutely aware of, realize that in this moment, which is my lifetime and your lifetime, there's peace between us. And I concentrate there. I look for those moments. And there are many of them in my day and in your day and in our collective day. And there and the places where it doesn't exist, I try to the best of my ability as a human being, um, because I'm also flawed and am incapable at times, uh, to transform it to have it not be as painful or struggle or such. And that's where I, I want to spend my time and where I want to spend my intentional time and focus, you know? That's really beautiful, Benefsha. It is. Although I suspect you've amended it, that it originally was world peace, and now it's just peace between you and I in this conversation. <laughs> 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 What's you know, it going to be in a couple weeks from now? <laughs> <laughs> peace with me by myself. No, um, I think honestly, if we did more of that, Jean, you know, um, what you're doing here with this program, you know, if we did more of this where we hear each other, get to understand each other, understand that honestly, as cliche as this sounds, but we are, we are all walking with our own challenges and our own stuff and give each other a break and give each other the benefit of the doubt and bring compassion to the space 
and we did that in our homes and we did that on our streets and we did that in our workplaces that is it's impossible for that not to get over get up you know underneath the decision makers as well and change what what we're all hoping for banaf shahri i i thank you for your time i thank you for your wisdom i thank you for going to some of those difficult places in this conversation and and uh, some of the subjects that may be considered taboo for our community uh, i'm very grateful that uh, we got the chance to do this thank you for this thank you thank you this this was um, really a delight jianjian thank you for incorporating my voice and what you're up to khodafes khodafes banaf shahlari the pioneering civil and human rights attorney, educator, best-selling author, social entrepreneur. She joined us from San Francisco, California today. decompressing from that uh, um, from those words from Benafshe that was uh, quite a conversation I I, I, uh, I actually cherish a lot of what she had to say there that meant a lot that uh, interview uh, with the round table has uh, been here the whole time we've turned your microphones back on now Captain Reza hello hello Groovy Shaya hi uh, the fabulous Keon. Hello. Hello. And our special guest on the roundtable this week, Niaz Salimi, an actress, a human rights activist, the founder and executive director at Mothers of Rainbow Foundation. Welcome, dear Niaz. Thank you, and hello to your audience. You know, uh, Niaz, I, I should start with you. Your, uh, your personal story of all you've been through inside and outside of Iran as an artist, as an activist, is remarkable and worthy of a proper interview on another edition of Rook. But knowing that you've had this incredible story yourself, and we heard some of the hardship that Banafsheh went through as a kid in, in the United States, you've been through that in Iran and outside, as, as I say. Tell me, reflect, if you will, on, on uh, where your thoughts were as you were listening to what Banafsheh had to say. Well, uh I'm at awe by her assessment of the situation, by her compassionate, honest, and balanced, fair assessment of the situation. Uh, yeah, this is this is this is the problem. Uh, we are suffering from identity crisis here and back home, uh, regardless. I believe that she correctly addressed the issue regardless of our background or culture or heritage or history, however we perceive ourselves, among ourselves. Uh, we are people of color, we are Middle Eastern, and we are Muslims. And for whatever reason, we don't want to acknowledge and embrace any of those. Well, you you say for whatever reason, but you must have some sense of what the reasons are. Why why do we have such a? I mean, she addressed it, but uh, why is there such a resistance? It seems easy for you to say we're people of color. Why is there such resistance in our community sometimes to say that? Well, I believe uh, she accurately 
explained everything and it makes it a challenge for me to add to that. But I think sometimes we act like little children. We close our eyes and we believe the problem is gone because especially outside of Iran, uh, we don't like these parts of our identity and we just want to deny it. And it feels like airing dirty laundry to talk about these things, like it's taboo, like we're not supposed to, um, to have these conversations. It's, I think it's more than that. It's not just uh, airing your dirty laundry, but by naming it, you make it uh, happen. You, you make it as a fact. It. Yes. You actualize it. Yes. Exactly. And uh, to me, it's very immature uh, way of dealing with these issues. If these are issues that affect us, we have to acknowledge them, we have to identify them, we have to own them, and then think about how we can change the meaning of the content of the box, the box of being Middle Eastern. Yes. Because there is some uh, meaning, some uh, some quality attached to that label, to the content of that box. And by changing that context, that content, the meaning will change and the perception will change. Because if I am a fair person, doesn't matter what the title says, eventually you realize that I'm fair or I'm educated or I am open-minded, uh, whatever, whatever, good qualities that we want to add to that to separate us from that uh, ancient meaning or cliche meaning of those labels. Mm -hmm. You know, to, to put the question to you that is forms the pretext of this episode, uh, because you do some work that is similar to Ben Afshit. When I was thinking about you coming in for this, you, you've been dealing with migrants and minority groups and injustice for years. Uh, do you agree with her that it is it's not just fanciful, but that it is imperative that the Iranian community begin to accept that the, that we are the other, uh, like uh, other minority groups. Uh, definitely, definitely. First of all, I have to mention the difference between uh, Ms. Akhlaqi and myself is she has an office. I work at the corner of the street. Right. Um, and uh, yes, uh, to me, the key is through civic engagement. We have to believe that we are, as she mentioned, like, you know, uh, the citizens of those 24 countries, those uh, nationalities, we are part of that. Yeah. And by acknowledging that, we look at the issue to see what is that we don't like about this. First of all, internally, we have to do our own auditing. What is that we don't like about it? What is the perception of, you know, uh, other people, people who are not like us, who don't have the same skin color, who don't have the same culture background? And then if there is something that is unfair, this is something that is not right in their perception, we have to work towards changing that. And we can't do it alone. We can't do it as Iranians. As she said, 
We are part of that tapestry. We can't sit back and be quiet and just go out and accept everybody to support us and fight for our cause when something targets us, only us. You know, it was so beautiful when she talked about Black Lives Matter and she says, for the first time, or one of we have a community. Those people, people of color who are fighting for, you know, recognition against injustice, all that, we're part of that. We can be part of that. Uh, instead of sitting on the sideline, sidelines and saying we're Safid or debating whether we're part of it or if they're different, or, uh, it's a place for us, right? Did that resonate for mm-hmm. you? Definitely. Definitely. I actually work most of the time outside of the Iranian community, but I take my Iranianness with me. I try to be, uh, if it's not <laughs> too much to ask, the ambassador of my community in any peace movement, uh, social justice movement, anything. Because I believe by, as she said, by uh, holding hands and becoming one, becoming one voice, we can have more effect we can have more support when uh, we need. And then there are so many issues that affects all of us similarly. Um, I remember uh, I had this interview at CTV many years ago. And uh, that's when I was involved with uh, Muslim Canadian Congress during the time I was president of Muslim Canadian Congress, something that my community never forgave me for doing or being involved. And uh, the person who was interviewing me asked me if I am a practicing Muslim. And I openly declared that I'm not. I have never been religious. I don't, I'm not a believer at all. But we are part of the statistics. We are part of the number. Hmm. There are 1.5 million Muslims in Canada, regardless if I am uh, an artist, a leftist, a socialist, uh, whatever, atheist, uh, gay, lesbian, I am part of that number. I explained to her, I said, my younger son was born outside of Iran. He is part of that number. So if we don't want what that number or that qualities or whatever attribution there is, to this number, we have to own it and then try to change it. Again, regardless of how we see, want to see ourselves, yeah. <laughs> we can't control how others see us. No. And others have certain ideas about us that we're, we're not going to, the package that we can't necessarily escape from and better to understand mm-hmm. that and own it. Um, let me just, I'm going to come back to you, Niaz. Let me just get a quick sense from everybody mm-hmm. else because you guys all have come from different places, literally, and, and come, might come from different places on Banaf Shia. Yes. Uh, and you don't have to react to exactly what we've been talking about. I know you just, uh, we've just all heard this interview and, and, and are reacting to it. So yes. uh, go ahead. How, what, what, what were you feeling as I was talking to her? The thing that I want to say, actually, I was heartbroken when she told the story about what happened uh, to him and many others after hostage crisis that was unbelievable for me unbelievable and 
it was, you know, I, I'm speechless. I've uh, said this a, a number of times. I'll, I'll keep saying it. And consider yourself fortunate. People who come now, as difficult as it may be, you know, as, as much as there may be a racism, institutional or otherwise, or whatever in the air, uh, in the Iranian community, you, you will never know what it was like yes. during that hostage crisis when we were enemy number one. And it completely resonated for me when she was talking about that. And it's interesting that it comes as such a surprise to you Ooh, because wow. you've come to one of the places in the diaspora that's populated by Iranians, Toronto. Yes. And so you can kind of incubate here, right? Without, um, but the feces on the front door and all of that, it, it is a, it is shocking. And she lost all her friends. And, and, and by the way, you know, and she would say that the studies show that Iranians were relatively well liked. If you take the United States or either people didn't know about Iranians or they liked or they had a positive impression ish, uh, you know, up until the revolution. And, and, and so then there's this massive um, upswing in antagonism, hatred, uh, demonization of Iranians. Uh, it levels off a little bit. Then it happens again after 9-11, despite the fact that Iran wasn't directly involved in 9-11 at all, or Iranians weren't, it, that, that there's this uh, uh, upswing then again. And uh, so it's sort of a ca can't catch a break category of, uh, of, of being Iranian. Yes. But the, the stories she tells are very realistic for me. Oh, I cannot believe it. Still, I cannot believe it. Uh, Re Reza, what was, what was um, your, uh, Captain Reza, sorry. What was <laughs> your, <laughs> I, I, Get it right. I don't, I can't believe I just called you by your How common dare name. You? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, don't 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 do that again, please. But uh, in all seriousness, um, first of all, incredible interview. I I, I was just like um, Niaz mentioned. Uh, I was in awe of what she, she had gone through and her perseverance and her attitude towards towards that. And there, she said a couple of things that completely resonated with me. She said quite near the end of the interview when she said she doesn't get. Uh, bitter she doesn't hold grudges but she does get angry because that's natural human reaction she, uh, Banafsha really broke down our issue in a way that if and th this is my opinion my take I think our as Iranians I think we suffer from uh, superiority complex individually and that's why we have problems uh, with being a team player and, and and I think that goes back to the fact that Iran is a country of thousand cultures and again this is my opinion I think again she sort of mentioned that very briefly that we should bring a psychologist to to analyze this perhaps better I don't know there, there, there's there's got to be some kind of uh, path to navigate be between uh, what you just call the superiority complex or some somehow seeing ourselves as better and uh, pride you know there's there's because often it gets talked about as pride and there's surely there's nothing wrong with pride and, and being proud of our Iranian heritage our culture etc but we all know that if we said to a, a group of Iranians maybe even the people in this room uh, are you the same as uh, Indians Pakistanis and Syrians and Lebanese and uh, you know Iranians are gonna have a variety of reactions to that they're not all gonna be positive that's for yeah. sure and that's a problem Right. Yeah. That's a problem because that maybe that's one of the reasons that uh, inhibits us from being able to to join a broader broader community yeah. that that Ben Afshay is making the case. And what was so so powerful for me about her is she's not 
calling ourselves people of color out of any need for hipster validation or self-victimization, you know? she For her, it's the reality of how we are seen and treated, and she brings this legal and institutional case, at least in America, why it's really important for us to embrace this mm-hmm. idea of the other. And she says, in the jail cell, you know, they're not pointing out, pointing you out and going, oh, you're different from the Syrian and the Lebanese guy. And the other, They're all the same, you know? Yeah. There's no special dispensation because you say you're an Aryan. Uh, and I, uh, that was very powerful. Niaz, you're, you're nodding your head. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with you because I believe individually we can pull ourselves up from that group, uh, whatever you want to call it. Individually, we can be successful through our contribution to this, that, through our talent, make money, be great uh artists be great at academia but when the time comes we are being pushed back to that pool we are part of that and we need help and support we need understanding of us our values in those rainy days in those bad times in good times nobody cares right we all go about our own lives but in those times we don't want to be left alone because we never uh, contributed to any issue in the society because I'm not part of that, I'm not like that, I'm lighter than this, I am better than that. And this is the problem because when... We isolate ourselves as a community. Exactly. When we had this issue, let's say, um, the sanction. Nobody knows, nobody cares, except some members of the community. And of course, there is a big issue about that because the we, community itself we, doesn't even agree on yeah, this. Exactly. <laughs> this yeah, because but. Iraq went through that mm-hmm. and they suffered and it majorly affected their, their life, their history, everything, their current history. Uh, we even don't talk to them. We even don't want to learn. We don't want to listen, not follow or agree. Just listen to their stories about what happened to them. Well, that's interesting because the other one of the other things that really stuck out to me towards the end of that interview is, is and I'm thinking about people listening to this right now. I hope they get to this part of the podcast where mm-hmm. I can say to them, it's okay if you disagree. Yeah. It's okay if you think this is hogwash. If you think Mosefi has to, why are they talking? That's okay. The point she was making about democracy, which sounds like this important word that's in a book somewhere, she said it's about sitting across from the person you disagree with and talking. Let's talk about it, right? And and that's something we have trouble doing in our community as well. Yeah. Because uh, are the people who disagree with things that are, are being said here right this second as they're listening, ready to sit and talk about it? I'm, you're welcome to come in here and talk about it. Uh, we'll put you on the on the show. Let's talk about. It. Uh, but there is a. But there is. A, we've talked about this a number of times over our last 31 episodes. There is this reflexive dug in mentality that uh, that that we have experienced in our community, not exclusively. These are generalizations, mm-hmm. of course where people take a position and they ride the position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no discussing it, right? Uh, I, I can tell you, at least in my opinion, why uh, is that the case now? This is because everything has been politicized in our community. Like before, we were people of color living 
in North America or Europe or whatever, of course. Now it's all politicized. So it has a double meaning. So we want to basically get away from whatever that means or the effect of that. We don't want that to reflect on us. So that's why I tell you, I was shocked in the recent uh, uh, demonstration we had uh, against war, there were a group of Iranian there supporting the war and mm. accusing us as being the supportive of our government back home, mm-hmm. which was nonsense. Mm. Even the the meaning of peace and war has been politicized. So if you are for peace, maybe you have you an agenda. You must be with the regime. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This and this is very dangerous, very dangerous. Keon, I'm so sorry. It's uh, uh, I've taken. Uh, we've been no, no. Discussing. I've, I've I just been listening in, uh, intently. Your 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 reflections on any part uh, of that. First of all, I have to thank you for introducing Banafsha to me. I I'm shocked that I had never heard her name before. So when I heard she was coming on the show, I put it. I watched her TED talk and was blown away. Um, you have this impressive woman. She went to college at 15, has all these accomplishments. Besides all that, she genuinely loves humans. And she, she, I think she was specifically put on this earth to help humanity. And that really touched me. And I think she even teared up at one point during her TED Talk. And that I felt that. I, um, she's like the Persian Amal Clooney. That, I don't know if she'll <laughs> like that label. But honestly, that's how I look at her. This beautiful woman, a role model that every Iranian girl should look up to. And she... Um, she, I think she uh, she touched on it really well. She, uh, you asked her, what, how can we fix the issues in our community? And she said, how about start with yourself? Look inside yourself. What do you want to represent? How do you want the Iranian community represented? And um, she starts, everything has to start with love. We have to have good intentions if you want to be seen as a positive community and do good in in this world so. uh, again I, I ask you these questions I always feel like I'm putting you on the spot all of a sudden but you are uh, sitting at the round table um, how how has it been in your family if you were to to, to say I don't know now or mm-hmm. as a kid or say I'm a brown person how, how are your parents with that how's your family <laughs> well with that? I I don't know if I look at it as a positive thing but my we're we were, we tend to be quite lighter in, on my side of the family. And I hate to admit this, but my mom would kind of say this in a positive light, like we're Aryan, we're not like the Arabs and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. It's kind of seen as a positive thing in the family. And I, I guess I grew up with that. And it wasn't until later in life when I started to be exposed to more of the Iranian community and see, wow, there's so many different other subcultures in this country and there's so, so many different languages we're, and we're all from the same place. Mm-hmm. So why why do we always, why is it always a competition? Like, well, we're lighter skin. We're like, we come from this region. We're better. Why? Why are we like this as a community? There definitely is that within the Iranian community. There's an elevation yeah. of people with lighter skin mm-hmm. amongst uh, some folks. Uh, and not but just, that, not but that, just that, our not, country. But not just the Iranian community. Exactly. I was going to say. And that, that, that happens in, yeah. uh, or uh, yeah, you could say in the Jewish community, in the Israeli community between mm-hmm. the Ashkenazi and Sephardic yeah. uh, uh, communities, et cetera. It's, that's, there's been histories of this, but um, we as representatives of our community, I find it, I find it really uh, personally um, 
sad that uh, that some are considered lesser because mm-hmm. they have darker skin, e- even in our own community, let alone uh, the way we treat other communities. And, and that's for another show. Reza, you're chomping at the bit. What did you want to say? Oh, no, I'm just listening. Oh, uh, eagerly I'm at the microphone. Eagerly, right? yeah. <laughs> just listening. Okay. But, but I was going to say that uh, my parents still to this day hold a strong position in terms of uh, <laughs> them thinking that, yeah, we are... No, we everybody's good, you, and you know how Persian parents are. Like my certain Persian parents, like my parents are like, no, everybody's, you know, we are all equal, we're all human, but you know, we're Iranians, we're better. Than <laughs> we are more yeah. equal. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's it's it's, a, it's, it's a subtle way of. Uh, <laughs> there would be nothing wrong with being brown, but what's that for you? Not us. I I would I would hope that we, as the next generation, would raise our kids a little differently not to say that our parents were awful parents they did their best but i should hope that we would raise them knowing that we're all equal and well i wanted you know. to ask niaz because uh and and all of us that the, because Manifshed does she does suggest that things are changing she says that for her it was seeing it after 9 11 there's been this trajectory over the last 20 years where she sees uh, i said even this conversation you know about being people of color could we have had this conversation uh 20 years ago i mean outside of activist circles or certain mm-hmm. you know academic groups or and she she thinks no that's really changed that there's more willingness in our community to to embrace a minority status see the importance of that um in terms of the kind of uh legal representation that uh, that comes from it and all of that. Uh, uh, um, what is your sense of that, Niaz? I totally uh, agree with her. I believe in that. Remember, uh, I can be your parent, right? Uh, I was raised in that culture. Within ourselves, that was the dialogue. That was the belief. And then we came out of that culture. Uh, our children are raised here. They go to school, they mix with different, you know, uh, nationalities, different ethnic groups. They learn from them, they they experience for themselves. They don't listen to us necessarily and our ideas, as valuable as it is to them, or they pretend, but it is not the only way of looking at things. That's not the only fact, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And also, we never had these type of, uh, activism back home. Never ever someone raised these issues. Now here, if not in our community, in other communities, in other groups, people are discussing these issues. People are working towards, you know, changing what's not desirable, what's not fair, mm-hmm. what's not mm-hmm. right. And our kids get exposed to that. And that's that's an amazing thing. Of course, it doesn't resolve uh, in one generation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but at least the stories they tell their children, the values they basically uh, hand to their children is different from us and what we got from our parents. I guess some some folks would say, we didn't have time for these issues, we're too busy trying not to get jailed by the regime back home. Or, 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 or changing or, the world. Or, 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 or cha- <laughs> well, yeah, so uh, it's, it, um, that's an, so so Shia, we're 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 as somebody who's much newer to this conversation, uh, newer to the diaspora, who was mm-hmm. only in Iran two or three years ago. Is this a does this seem like a very foreign conversation to you? Um, yes, actually, I I 
I have a story that uh, in in Toronto I went to a restaurant called Chopin and there is a piano there and I, I went there I wanted to play piano and they didn't serve me I have this uh, this I had this experience mm -hmm. here but I, I, I didn't know that I consider as a colored people mm -hmm. until uh, until black lives matter and rock episode on that and then i realized oh really so yeah so you've you've <laughs> i mean you are in a very the most diversity in the world in toronto so yes. maybe it's a little easier coming here yes but um i don't know how much you've traveled but uh once you once you start traveling you start recognizing the way people um uh perceive yes. you it's uh, not uh, <laughs> uh, for sure no i mean uh, uh, for sure i i knew that i'm not white i'm different i, I have different looking but i the designation I, you the name yeah, for it no you know. yes yeah. i i i didn't i do, i don't know if somebody fight against racism it 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 affects you as well yes yeah. yes interesting but see, be, yeah, see and, and th that that's a, that's a pro that that makes me sad mm -hmm. because it's a, a because we have to do a better a better job then of educating our own community, including you, yeah. about racist incidents incidents towards Iranians because exactly. they exist. They exist all over North America. We 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 know about them. We see them. We hear about them, and. We cannot live in this la la land of 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 yes. uh, you know saying oh that happens to Arabs it doesn't happen to Iranians yes. because those distinctions aren't made uh, in the broader community necessarily we wish as as Manafsha said that everyone had a good sense of history knew what uh, I mean not to take anything away from the Arabs you know but but that n to know the differences of different cultures and th th none of these distinctions are made you you know that yes I mean, uh, exactly uh, th this is so um, but I think another the reason that Iranians um, um, like when they when when the racism or, or, or discrimination towards Arab people um, occurs uh, they they try to distance themselves from it and and they they, they they don't include themselves is because the animosity between Iranians and Arabs in general um, uh, as well so we want to distance ourselves from um, Arabic culture Arabic language religion anything that has to do with that as much as human you're an actor also, right that's right do you think that you wouldn't get cast as a terrorist because oh, you're Iranian one of the <laughs> and not Arab? <laughs> one of the reasons that I've Haven't stopped. Haven't you already? No, 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 no you're 100% right. One of the reasons actually that I stopped like acting for a while is because that was the only thing that I was being submitted for and going for. Right. Even though, yeah, and it, it is quite, it's not, it, well, it's the reality of the situation. But um, and, and but one thing that Niaz said that tr uh, completely spoke to what uh, Banafshi was talking about is that, yes, we cannot change it overnight. However, this conversation is important. Th this initiation is important. And this is the beginning of it. Uh, just like civil, just like the um, um, the the civil rights movement, like it didn't happen overnight, but it happened and it started somewhere. And this is a conver important conversation to be had. All right. Um, before we end this roundtable, I want to give a final word to to Niaz. I I almost feel embarrassed. Uh, 
uh, bringing you here as a, a, a conversing with us since you've got so many more years of experience in this uh, dealing with these issues and and we're all opining but the <laughs> idea is to get different perspectives from different walks of the Iranian diaspora and and different ages and different uh, years of being here so um, so a final word uh, anything you want about what uh, uh, reflecting on this conversation first of all I'm delighted to be here. I love you, I love your program, I love your colleagues, and what you do is great and very important. If I want to close with one issue, what Ms. Akhlari said at the end of her interview about democracy, <coughs> we have been longing for, for this democracy for at least the last 200 years, right? But our understanding of democracy is absolutely wrong, off. Mm. Democracy is not a gift that is being sent to us, to our door. As much as uh, it's our right, it's our responsibility, and we have to make it happen. We have to build it. We have to work towards that. If within our own community we discriminate someone who is one shade uh, darker than us or has an accent or believes in uh, whatever different, we cannot expect democracy to happen for us. We have to understand it, we have to acknowledge our responsibility, and we have to work hard towards that. If we are not ready, it's not gonna happen. It's like that uh, bird of uh, happiness. You have to be awake mm -hmm. to hear that, to see that. If you are asleep, it comes and goes, and you never know. You, you lose your chances. So we have to wake up and we have to start working towards that. I may not be able to change my own opinion or my way of looking at the world, but I can be kind to my children, to the next generation, and try to help them to elevate this situation. If, to me, it's not where it is, I have to help them to develop uh, uh, improve and elevate whatever part of this identity that we don't like. So, Nia Salimi, it has been a, 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 a very important and very um, helpful and and uh, and lovely to see you here and to have you as part of the roundtable. Thanks for doing this this week. Thank you. That's our special guest, Dia Salimi, actress, human rights activist, founder and executive director, Mothers of Rainbow Foundation. That is our Rook Roundtable for this week. We've only got one thing left to do, and that is Letters of the Week. A 
Okay, so last week on episode 29, we had the human rights advocate, writer, um, Professor Mansu Farhang on the show. He yes. spoke to us about being arrested for the first time at age 16, all for advocating for former Prime Minister uh, Mossadegh, yeah, yeah. um, as well as his uh, short stint as the uh, ambassador to, to the United Nations during 1979, and then escaping right after that while his friends were all being executed. Yeah, it was quite a... It was quite, I mean, and no matter where you got a bunch of different, I know, thoughts about him. Yeah. Uh, but no one could take it away his uh, his cognitive skills. It <laughs> yeah. sounds dismissive to say that just because he's 84. But For sure, he's yeah. just so incredibly sharp, right? He's sharper than me, and he's probably three times my age. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, Nobody I, I, make a comment well, on that. Well. You all Three times silent. would be a little excessive. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, close, close enough. What is <laughs> Eighty-four. Yeah. yeah. Moving on to the letters. He's, he could be twice your age. That's true. Should I punch you all in the face <laughs> no. right now? <laughs> we got a lot of letters. Uh, from we him. did. We him, did. Right? So we have a Jeron Escandetti on YouTube wrote, "What a great and unique interview, you guys." not only reflecting on historical remarks, but his genuine narrative on a personal journey as someone who lived through all those moments. And then we have Amir Nigdel. He wrote, are you guys wearing masks at the round table? <laughs> well, it's funny you bring that up. Nick Dale. Nick this Dale. guy is uh, he's uh, a huge know, fan. He's a huge fan, but usually uh, writes apparently letters that have nothing to do with the content. <laughs> I know. Just things he's thinking in his head. <laughs> and no, we're not wearing masks. We're uh, socially distanced. Yes. And well, we get it's phase three we... now or something. Phase two. Uh, all right. Yeah, Thank you, so Amir Nickdale. As well, we have Genus Family. She wrote, First time in 40 years, I willingly listened to anything even slightly related to Iranian politics, and I actually enjoyed it. Thanks. Oh, yeah, that's good to that's hear. That's a nice comment. Yeah. So, as well, this week on episode 30, we had an interview with um, Armenian-Iranian-American musician, songwriter, and producer Erwin Khachikian be honest you're impressed that i can pronounce that so uh irwin recounts growing up as the son of a church pastor in the 1970s tehran working with system of a downs serge tonkion producing with siovash komeshi and finding his own solo sound so we had a few people write on that we have jamie smith on youtube he or she wrote by the way sorry one thing uh, hey shia yes. so somebody uh wrote to me and said you you know have you talked to Ervin about the order in which you say he's Armenian Iranian American but maybe he would uh, shouldn't he be saying Iranian Armenian uh, American how does he identify we should we should, we should ask well I, I know I've got to text to Ervin or, or if I find out but uh, but do you know the answer to that no no I don't either <laughs> But, and, and I have another question. Is it but, is, it's, but some people care about the order, apparently. I mean, I Probably, you know, yeah. Iranian Canadian, Canadian Iranian. I doesn't. I mean, I guess I'm an Iranian Canadian, but but uh, yeah, but Armenian Iranian American seem to make sense to me. It does. Take away the American, and what is he? He's Armenian Iranian. That's how you would start it out, and or, then or the is American, he Iranian or Armenian? Iranian Armenian? No, because I, I, it makes sense to me the other way. Mm -hmm. Because it's within Iran, but it's a well, That's right, because cultural. we say Iranian-Canadian. Yes. Yeah. 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 But, and uh, then break that down further, and you add Armenian, yeah, yeah, Iranian. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess yeah. if it makes sense to you, then we gotta follow yeah, suit. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I'm the master of this. All right, sorry. Letters <laughs> anyway, about Airbnb Club, and uh, so yeah, so we have Jamie Smith on YouTube wrote, "This is a style of music I've never really flirted with. Listening to Rook means that I can be exposed to it through a familiar window." In brackets, he has Gian's fantastic journalism. Hope you're well, dude. That's great. Yeah. Uh, that's like that's the ideal to be introducing. Uh, artists like Ervin to, yes. to, to to new folks. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Jamie Jamie Smith. Yeah, Jamie Smith. And is it Erwin or Ervin? It's Ervin. I, I think in, in North America he goes by Erwin. Does he? Because that's how it's spelled. Erwin. Well, he looks like Erwin, but Erwin. Uh, we don't have... It's a silent w. w. We don't have W, Erwin. do we? We can't uh, pronounce Are you using the Vindex? <laughs> we don't say Windex. Vindo. Vindo. I guess we're just supposed to know. Ervin. All right. Well, and then we have Hesam Hesamian music uh, on YouTube wrote Gian salutes. I have memories with your song Persian Cowboy, but I didn't. <laughs> what? Yeah, I had <laughs> a song, song called Persian I Cowboy. I have no idea. You I did? have to go listen yeah. to this immediately. See me, Persian. It's oh, like wow. this kind of you uh, so two like rock song called Persian Cowboy. This is like literally was 20 it, years ago. Persian was it a solo cowboy? one or? Yeah, no, it's a solo one. It's, is it yeah, country? Yeah. No, no, okay. it's not. No. no, it's a rock song, but it's called Persian Cowboy. All right, yeah. I have to listen to it immediately after this. Uh, anyway, he goes on saying, but I can't find it anywhere nowadays. <laughs> I guess yeah. it's not the Nor could I. I don't think I could find it. <laughs> he goes, um, I used to watch your music back in the days. Um, and thank you for bringing my brother Ervin to your podcast. Ervin has helped me so much and has been a big inspiration in my music production journey. You chose the right guy. Take care, and I wish you all the best. Nice. Yeah, that was lovely. Give him a, another uh, a shout out. What's his name? Hesam uh, Hesamian. Sounds like Hesam is a musician yeah. himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He has music Hesamian. behind that. All right. Yeah. Uh, we'll and check then, you out, Hesam. Yeah, and then we have Soul Homes Property Management Team wrote, "You guys are <laughs> rocking it." Thanks, Gian and Shaya. And Did the whole property management team write that? <laughs> was it the entire company? <laughs> it was their YouTube account. Oh. You smart ASS. Oh, that's good. You see, like, uh, even corporations are noticing us. Right. Well, Virginia. not me and you, Reza. Yeah. We were excluded are, out of that. that Just was, thank you, Gian, Gian and Shia. <laughs> Nobody likes Reza. Yeah, I guess. Well, me too, apparently. We're not memorable. We've got some compliments for Keon before, but nothing for you, Reza. No, Just that yeah. one. We had that letter of the week. Remember where the guy was giving Reza a lesson I on? I know, I know. You can't Only remove one yourself letter, from politics. And that was a hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got actually more than one Do we? hay bale about That's you. But, uh, listen, we all were used to hay bale. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so then, uh, yeah, so going back even further to episode 22, we had the German Iranian journalist and foreign correspondent Natalie Amiri on the show, uh, the only female international reporter permanently stationed in Iran since 2007, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. As well, we had Ahmed Kiorostami on the show discussing continuing the legacy of his legendary filmmaker That was a, one of my favorite episodes of uh, yes. Rook. Natalie Miri and Ahmed Kiorostami. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was Number good. what was that, 21? It was 22. 22. Yeah, 22. And so what, do, what have people said? We have a few people that wrote on that. We have a Farah K on YouTube wrote, Thank you for these interesting interviews, especially the one with Ahmad Kiorostami. 
It took me back to my own childhood memories, as Ahmed went to a high school very close to the one I went to. And quite a few of my friends had serious crushes on him. Happy face. Thanks again for all your hard work. That was very sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Farah. And then we have a Ali Zaker on YouTube wrote, Yet another great episode. I liked Ahmed Kiorostami's part, but loved Natalie Amiri interview as well. What a beautiful, wonderful, courageous, and brave woman. I think she answered the famous diaspora question very accurately. Persian heart and German mind. Very well said. Thank you, Jean and the entire Rook team for such great programs. Keep up the great work and good luck. Stay safe. Nice. nice thank you, Ali, and thank you, Natalie. Yeah. Um, and then we have, on episode 26, we had filmmaker Babak Payomi on the show, and a few other users wrote about that. We have Ali Khalili on YouTube wrote, First of all, I can already feel the positive energy of F2F studio interviews. I was What's that? Face-to-face. <laughs> face-to-face. Oh. <laughs> I had to question you. I was like, what is that? What, yeah. I was like, is this the name of Keon, the studio? you knew that we are going to ask you what that is. Can you not, uh, it's, it was spelled. It, all right. You it's not to my make words. Sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, I was listening to this interview while walking in the Guftegu Park in Tehran. I'm assuming that, like, is that a real park? Guftegu yeah, Park? Yeah, or is yeah. it really? Oh, I yeah. love it's it. It's interesting. So this guy's listening in Tehran. Yeah. And he, he goes on saying, a very different experience compared to 17 years ago when the concept of dialogue between civilizations was initiated and this park was made as a symbol of that with quite a lot of diversity. Yeah. I also... Khatami. Sorry, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah, done, Reza. Sorry about that. Wait Go your on. turn. She's still. <laughs> she's still. <laughs> I'm. I'm watching her read the le- the, the letter F to F. F to no, I really F. like that letter. <laughs> I'm reading so it word for word. Okay, give me a break. Oh, she I'm is F to F with me F right to now. F to <laughs> F. I, I never. I've never seen that as an acronym. Has anybody else? F to F. But you didn't think to question it before you read it. I did not. Before no, coming in I with the letters. I tried. You had to do it on the air with us. I did. It's okay. Uh, He goes on and says, I also believe accommodating diversities and tolerating unpleasant but constructive feedback slash opinions would be a way to go for a bright future of Iran. Well said. So who was that? This was Ali Khalili writing from Guftegu Park, Tehran. I I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I love that. that F to F interview. <laughs> with, <laughs> with I, Babak. I really do love that to have been Babak Payami here. Yeah. And and Ali Khalili in, in Goftegu Park <laughs> is absolutely right that there is a totally different energy. You know, we, we launched this show with the hope that people could be in, in studio. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was, it's was it been the time of COVID. But the yeah. more we can do in here, of course, when I can look at someone rather than do the interview over a, a telephone, it's a it's an, yeah. a different animal. When you add a face to the voice. Were you going to say something about Goftegu Park, uh, Shaya? I love Goftegu. Actually, Aww. I miss Goftegu Park. Yeah. Aww. It's a very cute and co- cozy park. In the uh, in the cham- beside Chamron uh, uh, Highway, is it, is it west or east or west is it Tehran? Mostly west, but it's at the center, kind uh, of. Yeah, I'm not from Tehran, so I wouldn't know uh, about it, but. Uh, but but I'm impressed. And I thought it was right. a nickname. I can't believe that's a real name, Guftegu Park. That's yeah. adorable. Um, and then we have a Anush Iptikar also wrote uh, on that same interview. He wrote, for 30 years, I she, thought... She, probably, is right? Is it Anush? Anush? I think it Anush is, is a, a she. Is it? 
Are uh, we sure? I've, maybe it's I've, a unisex no, name. Actually, I've known male Anushas. So I've never it heard doesn't any. matter. It doesn't matter. I, I, I'm sorry I cut you off. <laughs> um, so he or she says, for 30 years, I thought my English was okay until I listened to your show. It's at Shakespeare's level. Love your show. Even white people can't talk like you. This is your art. <laughs> and it's so true. Jean, you make you make me sound like a truck driver. I like not to, nothing against truck drivers, but my my greatest aspiration is to speak the way white people do. <laughs> like Shakespeare. You know, I we we all have our dictionaries handy whenever Jean speaks. <laughs> I love that. That's uh, that's the standard. Do you feel any like progress in my English? From Are you kidding? Episode? I do. Dude, I think so. you, you, the first, in the beginning, you were like literally, you know, <laughs> yeah. your community, we literally were doing sign language. Uh, <laughs> you, no, you were speaking Farsi to me mostly. We would speak yes, in Farsi in the now beginning. So now we speak English yeah, yeah, and, sure. and Farsi. It's nice. Yes. Yeah. Has so my Farsi improved? Not at all. Not at all. You sure, your Farsi's gotten worse. <laughs> I've learned Kola Cap. So <laughs> there, yeah, it's gotten worse. Kov, look at that. We have the letter of the week. Letter of the week. So this week it goes to a Ramak Milani. He he. It's a he, right? Ramak. No, I don't think so. I think Ramak is a she. Ramak is a she. So she emailed us saying, "Hello, Gian and You're the fuss. He's getting a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I can't. Anyway, oh, Ramak emailed us saying, "Hello, Gian and the Rook team. Thank you for all you do at Rook. I'm enjoying every interview and getting to learn about these amazing and inspiring Iranians." I've started listening to Rook from the beginning, and I just finished the episode with Chef Salimian. His laughs were contagious, and he seemed to be such a delightful person. I was jogging while listening to him and laughing every time he laughed. That made me look like a lunatic. Thanks, Chef. That was one of the happiest jogs I've ever done. My sister lives in Vancouver, and hopefully I'll go visit her after the pandemic is over. I'll make sure to stop by Mr. Salimion's restaurant slash hotel and try his das Pocht. Chaste nabashid and keep up the good work. Nice. That was, nice. That was so That's heartwarming. Right. I love that. Yeah. So many people in parks and jogging while <laughs> yeah. listening to Rook. I, that, that's a very efficient way to N- listen nice to. Nice shout out yeah. to, to Chef Hamid. Thank you. Uh, who was it? It was Ramak Milani. Ramak Jan, merci. Thank yeah. you for that so much, that uh, letter of the week. Thank you, the fabulous Keon, for all of your uh, uh, work here. Thank you, Captain Reza. Thank you. Uh, Groovy Shaya. Uh, thank you to the entire, um, uh, well, little Rook team that uh, helps put this together each week. Susan, Ponta, Merdad, Mohammed, uh, and the gang here. And to all of you guys out there who are helping us, supporting us, spreading the word, um, giving us suggestions of uh, how we can keep the lights on and keep this thing going and uh, grow it. So we thank you all. You can contact us at info at rookmedia.com. Uh, you can find us, as I said earlier in the show, on Instagram at rookmedia and our website, rookmedia.com. I want to go out on some music by Farhad from 1977 and a song, uh, lyrics by Iraj Janati Atayi, who we've spoken about a couple of times in the, the last few weeks. We've got to get him on the show. Uh, this is a song called Sach Mizunbashi. <laughs> Yeksap <laughs> 
ستان بوشه حراس ما باشه تو سردی شبها لباس ما باشه
تن ابر آسمونه یه افق یه بی نهایت کمترین فاصلمونه تو فکر یه سفم موسیقی